0: We see in the world, natural selection with these small changes provides everything you need to have all of not only the speciation, but all of the complexity as well. So, those are two different issues. There's a lot of different things, and those things are really, really complex. And what we say is well, natural selection and evolution can account for those. Endler's definition uh, any net directional change or cumulative change in the characteristics of organisms or populations over many generations, in other words, descent with modification, also includes microevolution. So I don't care about that. We're tossing that aside. I just wanted to put it up there so you could have an, an actual biologist quote, but take mine, okay? <clears throat> so let's talk about natural selection, which is a, another issue altogether. All what does natural selection mean? Natural selection. Is the process whereby organisms better adapted to their environment tend to survive and produce more offspring so when these changes happen they produce some new protein if that new protein helps them not only survive in their environment but that survival so living longer is only helpful so long as they can produce more kids okay more offspring and once they produce more offspring then that gene is going to be promulgated, right? So their genes are passed on to their offspring. The offspring get those. They pass on those genes. The more offspring you have, the more those genes are going to get passed on. That's naturally the best genes that are suited for that environment. That's what natural selection is. Evolution does not guarantee, and evolution does not at all consider us to necessarily be the top of the chain. The top of the chain is whatever survives, okay? So frankly, this is Part of a question I would have for an evolutionist: Bacteria are incredibly well suited to surviving anything. There's really we're not the top of the chain. We drop a couple of nuclear bombs on Russia; they're going to bomb us back. We could eradicate all human life, and bacteria are just like another day at the office, right? Like they're they're not bothered by this at all. So, um, survival of the fittest indicates that. Natural survival of fitness just means those who are best adapted to their environment are the ones who are going to survive. That's what evolution guarantees. That's what it wants to guarantee, okay? It just so happens, they would say, it just so happens that it also led to more complex life. But that's not necessary. Not necessary. Just kind of a nice side effect. All right. Having defined evolution that way, um, let's talk about then some requirements. First, it needs time and it needs death. These small changes in order to mount into larger changes needs a great deal of time. We're gonna talk about how much time and talk about how there just ain't enough of it. And even the way that you probably are thinking of evolution, I'm going to make sure that you understand by the end of this, the time that you think evolution can occur is not actually the time that biologists consider evolution to have occurred in. It's actually much shorter, which makes all the problems that much more difficult. And death. Death is necessary. If things live forever, then there's no reason to have evolution. Death is a necessity in this because death gets rid of all the bad genes. If you can't survive, you die. That's why your genes don't get passed on. Death is a necessary bit of this. And all this is built on key ideas. Minor changes lead to large differentiations. Frankly, we should be okay about that. That's not a big deal. We think that this can happen. Minor changes leading to large changes in life. We we think that this is true even in our spiritual journey. We, we make small choices every day and eventually that leads to building of virtues and things like that. This is the same thing that they build it on. Um, natural selection is an incredibly powerful chooser of good traits. That means that if you look at the human body, there's not a lot of fluff. Like, there's just not a lot of extra organs that are unnecessary. Now, we can pull out gallbladders, right? But, um, And we can pull out appendices, we can pull out tonsils, we can pull out a couple of things, but even on some of those, we've got to supplant with like other medications to keep up with what that was supposed to do. It might change the way we live. But there are very few things that we call vestigial organs, which are organs that used to be, they biologists think used to be useful or no longer useful. There are very few of those things. And even the things that are normally labeled like the appendix, I think that they might consider not to be completely useless anymore. I don't know about that, totally. But there's not a lot of fluff because natural selection is a powerful chooser of good traits. So it just, it, it very quickly gets rid of any sort of extraneous fluff and it promotes very strongly that which is good. And last, um, there's sort of arbitrary definitions. And by arbitrary, I don't mean illogical and I don't even mean bad. Um, I just mean that it's arbitrary. Species is not actually well-defined. Okay, so you can go to a book and they make it sound like species is this incredibly well-defined thing, but it's not terribly well-defined. Biologists will tell you that they have a, a trouble knowing where to divide species from class, from order, and things like that. So the, I don't have a diagram of it, but the, the biological taxonomy of things goes kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And so genus, the difference between a genus and a species it's kind of random. They just had to draw the line somewhere. We have to draw the line. The Bible draws the line somewhere, right? The Bible says they, they, you know, they, they make each other according to their kind, right? But we don't know what the Bible means by kind. Does Bible mean genus? Does it mean species? Don't actually know. Um, species is defined as, we'll talk about animals because it's just easier to talk about animals. Animals that reproduce together, or that naturally reproduce together, or that when, um, when they reproduce together, make viable offspring. Okay? So a lion and a tiger, we can force them to reproduce together and make ligers, but ligers are not viable. They can't have more ligers. Okay, we can't, we can't make them have more offspring. So that, that's one of the indicators that there's not a species there. The problem is that works really well for mammals. It doesn't work at all for fish. For fish, we can actually get two variated species to, we can, we can fertilize an egg um, from a different species and make another fish that can then propagate itself, right? So again, the, it's arbitrary. Um, that's not a huge deal, but just so you know, it's arbitrary. All right, and we're off. Problems. I got a lot of problems with these people. Um, if you if you want books that are helpful on this, um, Behe is going to come up. I think it's Behe. Behe. Anybody know how you pronounce that? Behe. So uh i don't know how you pronounce it but he he is obviously very famous because he's writing the foreword for this one and he's writing the foreword for this one as well um if you if you really wanted one i don't i've never read either of these two um i have read this one this is an excellent book so philip johnson isn't a biologist but he is an attorney um and he taught for many years at usc and uh that's the one in california not the one in south carolina and um Basically, he, when he says Darwin on trial, he's saying, hey, you know, what, what would happen if we put this sort of evidence on, on trial? And he, he deals very faithfully with what biologists are saying, and I think that it's an excellent resource. But any of those would be, would be good. Um, we do have problems. And the first one we're going to talk about is the problem of belief. So if I was dealing with, a, with somebody who believed in evolution, the, this is the first thing that I would mention to them, is belief. Um, frankly, let's be quite honest— very few human beings in this world have any idea what they're talking about when they talk about the fossil record. Okay. They have not seen the fossil record. They don't know what the fossil record contains. They know that it's a thing. They think that maybe the fossil record is something that's kept at like the Louvre, but they don't know what, what it actually is. Um, they, they just don't know. On top of that, they have no knowledge of what evolution actually requires very few people have detailed understandings of evolution. And even those people who are staunch defenders of evolution didn't probably study it all that much. Um, And so they will talk about something like the Dark Ages, and they'll say, you know, the problem with the Dark Ages was that people just... Like they listen to anything that, that their authorities would tell them. So the priest stands up in front of them and gives them these superstitious stories, and they buy into it. Um, they might say something like, you simpletons, just trusting whatever your authoritative priests tell you, don't you know they profit off of you? But the truth is that they, they are trusting what other scientists tell them. They are, they are just buying into what biologists and evolutionary biologists specifically tell them is true. If you talk to someone who's like, I believe in evolution, well, they haven't studied it. They don't know it. And I'm, by the way, totally fine with that. Like, I'm, I'm okay with people, like, believing what their teachers tell them. But you're just believing. Like, it's, it's important to get them to see that what they're doing is just trusting some dude's word. And those dudes profit off of them. We're going to talk more about that later. I don't mean monetary profit, although that can be true. They do probably profit off of it somehow. Um. One of the things that they're gonna bring up, and this is from a a Scientific American article, um, is that the more educated you are, the more you believe in education. And they'll plop something like this up there. God created humans in their present form within the past 10,000 years or so. Um, People who believed this, people who agreed with this statement. Basically, I don't believe in evolution, okay? And notice what they're saying. High school, college, graduate, postgraduate or professional, it just keeps going down, okay? And so the implication of this, especially when it's posted in an article about um, creation nonsense, which is one of the, it's part of the title of the article, um, is to say like the, the, the more education people get, the less they agree with evolution. My, the thing I would point out to them is simply this. Of the 2.1 million bachelor's degrees, only basically and i love the fact that they there's one short there's one kid who did not graduate to click that over 96,000 95,999 were in the biological sciences that does not include everything that would be considered somebody who would even be trained in evolution there could probably be some kinesiology in there there could be physical therapy would perhaps be part of that that's 4.6% of the bachelor's degrees of people who might have been literally taught evolution and and even had an entire class on evolution where they could say, I've read on evolution, I've studied evolution. Um, If you go back to that Gallup poll, that's only 3.45% of those who deny it. Um, It's a smaller percentage because there's 75% of bachelor's people, bachelor degree um, recipients, say that they, they don't believe that statement. And if they don't believe that statement, that's only 3.45% of those who don't buy it. So what we're saying is most people believe in it simply because they've been told they ought to believe in it, not because they've actually done any studying at all. And this is where I want to say it's much different from other parts of science. So one of the arguments that you're going to get is, hey, I just believe in the science. But at the very least, people who believe in evolution have to admit evolution is different than other facets of science. If gravity turns out to be vastly different than we have conceived of it theoretically, so we all know that you you drop something, it falls to the ground and and we've got the effects of mass, but why do we have the effects of mass? That's something that physicists are still working on. Is it a particle, is it curvature, space-time, whatever it is. If we find out that gravity is vastly different, that's a huge scientific breakthrough and it breaks with a huge amount of science that's been done in the past. What it doesn't do is change anyone's worldview. Like, no one's, no one's belief in God or their understanding of the universe is thrown up into upheaval. The minute that evolution is chucked, you now have people who have to decide upon the nature of humanity, the nature of life, the, the very import of what it means to be a person is now completely thrown up in the air. It's not like other scientific things. There is inherently, like, identity issues wrapped up in evolution which is one of the reasons why when i said they profit off of it they don't profit off of evolution necessarily by making money they profit off of it by supporting the way they want to view the world like there's a lot invested in evolution and so again it's a belief oh i gotta run all right mechanism um the problem with the mechanism of evolution is and and again biologists are pretty good about this they'll admit that the winding up of the clock is is actually the problem. How does evolution start is really a problem. Now, we're going to talk about the problems once it gets going, but how cells form, how DNA gets into those cells, how DNA does anything inside those cells is actually a huge problem. They don't really know how that works, okay? Okay. So there's a lot of problems. How did those nucleotides come together? So this is a DNA strand. When we talk about nucleotides, we mean one of these four things, A, C, T, or G. Okay, you can kind of see a small letter A on this little bit. It's just that little notch right there. That's a nucleotide. That's the most basic little bit of DNA. How did these things come together in this way? Um, Why weren't other chemicals attached to the end, which they can do. Chemicals do this. You could have caps on these things you could put different chemicals that bond in different ways to these why did they string together in the way that they did what's worse though even though that's chemically fairly explainable how did dna start to produce protein anyone who studies biology knows that immediately in the cell of a human being when dna goes through a process that we call translation when it makes proteins do you know what it uses to make proteins it uses proteins You've got to have proteins for DNA to make proteins. This is literally the chicken and the egg, right? What came first, the protein or the thing that made the protein? How can DNA make proteins unless it has the proteins already present to make proteins? And how, do, how does DNA get copied? They make it seem like DNA just gets copied. So they'll say like in the beginning, there's a cell it has some DNA and then it splits. Mm-mm. That doesn't just happen. DNA just doesn't copy itself naturally. There are, what do we need again for DNA to copy itself in transcription? We need RNA, which is a different form of its DNA, but it's ribose instead of deoxyribose. But we also need proteins for that. We need proteins to do. Anything that is done requires proteins. But we're also saying that biologically, the coding for those proteins comes from DNA. Well, that that creates huge problems. Like, RNA polymerase isn't just like floating around in the ether, right? That's something that we make. You and I make it in our cells. You didn't even know. You're busy right now. Um, How much change does it take? How much change does it take before we get a new species? So, for instance, these two dogs, I think that I've got them scaled correctly. This is a mastiff, this is a mastiff. Mastiffs can weigh up to 200 pounds. A good sized New York rat could take this thing down. Okay? <laughs> they are the same species. All variations of dogs are the same species. So you've got a four pound fully grown dog here, and you've got a 200 pound fully grown dog here. Same species. One of the things we're not going to deal with is, like, the Piltdown Man and um, Neanderthals and things like that. But what what scientists have done is they get, like, fragments of bones and even skulls. And they look at them and they say, this skull is different here and here and here. And therefore, we have a different, like, intermediate species. Do! You put this great big dome of a skull next to this one and you tell me that they're the same species? Yet they are, right? So, the, and even the frames of their bodies, like even the proportion of their bodies, dogs have incredible variation amongst them, all the same species. All the same species. So, because they're the same species, the mechanism how things become a new species is, is a little bit of a problem. Third, and I think this is one of the clinchers, and we'll kind of clinch it a little bit more as we go on, it's time and chance time and chance is a big deal. And if you don't like numbers, you probably just want to plug your ears and say, no, 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 here for just a second. But um, this is important. There's a bad way to argue this though. I want to take you through the bad way first, and then I'll take you through what I think is a better argument. If we look at those nucleotides, okay, in this strand of DNA, if you were to put all of yours in a row together, you have about 3 billion of those little nucleotides in your body. Okay. So in your DNA, you've got more than that in your body. I shouldn't say that, but in your DNA, you've got about 3 billion nucleotides, give or take. Um, you have four possibilities for each. So because we can, we can have runs of A's, runs of C's, runs of T's, and runs of G's, you can repeat these things. So if this is where our DNA starts and we put a T in there, we have actually four different things that we could put in there. We could put A, C, T, or G. A Denosine, cytosine guanine or thiamine we could plop that in there that's one of the four options and then we've got four other options for the one that's right next to it and four other options for the next one and four other options for the next one and four other options for the next one so the way that we figure out how many options we have in total is we take the four here and we multiply it by the four that comes next and the four that comes next basically what we end up with is four raised to the three billion okay that's a pretty large number. Moving it to base 10, which is a little bit easier for our brains to handle, is 10 to the 1.8 billion, okay? Now, that is a meaningless number. It's meaningless for a number of ways, but let me give you a little bit of context for how large that number is, which you're not going to actually be able to understand, but a little bit of a context. The number of atoms, of H2O, uh, uh, atom, we'll go with atoms. It doesn't actually matter. I, I, frankly, I forgot if it was atoms or molecules, but you can ignore it. In a drop of water is five times 10 to the 21st, okay? What that means is if you were to split that water into five parts, you would have a one with 21 zeros behind it is the number of atoms in that drop of water, okay? If that is true, that's a lot, by the way. If that's true, What's your guess for 10 raised to, how many zeros would be behind the one for atoms in the entirety of the universe? So now we'll move over to the universe. How many atoms in the entirety of, this has got 10 to the 21 and a fifth of this. How many in the entirety of the universe? Anyone want to stab? Huge, right? Just gargantuan, gargantuan. But our brains don't understand very well how exponents work. Okay, Because it seems like if this is 10 to the 21, and going up to the universe, you'd be like, it's got to be 10 to the, maybe, maybe something like this, right? 10 to the 80. It's 10 to the 80. It's just a one with 80 zeros behind it. That's it. Because exponents don't work the same way that they go up, basically what we would say, logarithmically, right? So the jump from here to here is astronomical because this is 80 zeros behind it now, it is so many trillions and trillions and trillions and billions and billions and billions times larger than this, but in the exponent, it doesn't show up that way, okay? Now compare that to the number of options that we have in DNA. That number is impossibly large. This is the bad argument. The bad argument is if this is how many options we have, then it can't possibly have happened. And let me tell you why that's a bad argument that's a bad argument because what evolution is saying is not that we needed to end up with humans that's not what evolution is saying so you can take those three billion and say in order to get humans this needed to happen and evolutionists would say okay but that's not what evolution does evolution could end up with us it could end up with a snail and it's, it's no different to evolution. Just because that particular run of A, C, T's and G's ended up with U doesn't mean that it had to. Those, those 3 billion uh, nucleotides have to, have to be something. And no matter what those 3 billion nucleotides are, that thing occurred, okay? In other words, if you say, this is impossible because there's so many choices, that's like saying the lotto can't happen um, not only could you not win the lotto, but even the numbers that come out in the lotto are impossible. So if you take a lotto where there's, you've got to pick six numbers from one to 60, okay? If you did the math on that, it would come out to be about one in, uh, I think, 3.6 billion, right? And somebody reports back to you and they say, okay, the numbers that got drawn out were 5, 15, 25, 32, 35, and 58. You say, pfft that can't possibly be the numbers because the likelihood of those numbers being picked are one in uh, 3.6 billion. Okay, that's true. That is the likelihood of those six numbers being picked out, but that doesn't change the fact that those six numbers were picked out, okay? So that's why it's a bad argument. It doesn't work. However, there's there's a better argument laying really close, and that better argument is this. Proteins work in groups or systems. Almost all proteins do. They work not isolated from other things, but they're part of a system. And each protein is really specific. So if you start changing the amino acids, the basic building blocks of proteins, which the nucleotides code for, if you start changing those things, the proteins don't fold correctly. Their three-dimensional shape is off and they can't do what they're supposed to do. They're very, very specific. So if you have two proteins, and let's say that those two proteins are doing their own little thing and they're working well, but there's a three-protein system that that an organism ends up with. What exactly has to happen for that third protein to be usable for it? Okay, what are the likelihood that one, somehow it adds DNA to code for that third protein, but two, that let's just give the fact that that DNA sequence is there, what is the likelihood that mutations are going to land in a third protein that is going to be helpful for that third system, okay, the three protein system? Proteins average about 1,000 nucleotides a bit. Um, So that's four to the 1,000 options. Um, But we'll do a favor and we'll say that you can be pretty close. Out of the 1,000 nucleotides, you only need 500 of them to be spot on for this to work. But even 500 of those things being spot on land you at 10 to the 300th. That is vastly more universes than you can imagine piled on top of one another. The likelihood of that system actually coming to fruition is infinitesimally we can't we there is no english word that describes how except for impossible impossibly small that is and this is one small system you have thousands if not tens of thousands of protein systems that work in your body all very specific about how they need to be made and how they need to be formed it is utterly unthinkable that it happened by accident. It just, the math isn't there. It just isn't there. Um, this is Fred Hoyle, who is, who is crazy, but he, he also won the Nobel Prize for physics, so he knows what he's talking about. But he thinks, he's not a creationist. He thinks that life, um, let me see if I got this right, because it's so ridiculous. He thinks that life on Earth was generated by the planting of life here by something else. That isn't God, but I don't know. I don't know exactly how he feels like it is, but, but it, couldn't, it couldn't have been by evolution. So he says, and again, his math is not wrong here. We must now admit to ourselves that the probability of life arising by chance, by evolution, is the same probability of throwing six in dice five million consecutive times. So if you just take a die, you throw it one time, you get a six. Throw it another time, you get a six. Throw it another time, you get a it time, you get a six. Like, doing that 5 million consecutive times, you can, you can without being able to do much math, you can say that's pretty unlikely, and that's what he's getting at. Okay, Fred Hoyle, not on our side, and again, absolutely loony, but he's got a good point there. This is actually made all the worse by something that we know of called the Cambrian Explosion. The Cambrian Explosion um, is something weird in the fossil record, and that is, this is where you'd probably learned evolution wrong in high school. And the problem is, I went to high school in the mid to late 90s. This was known, and the solution that Jay Gould gives to this was known since the early to mid 70s, and it was not relayed to me. And I would guess that for the vast majority of high school students, it's also not relayed to them. That is this. In the Cambrian age, about 500 million years ago, and we're dealing with The age of the earth, right, 500 million years ago is not that soon um, or is not that early. There was a sudden appearance of, um, it shouldn't be animal phyla, it should just be phyla, a 15 to 20 complex phyla with no trace of ancestors. So the fossil record does not contain them. And this includes most of the advanced complex life in the world. If we have fossils going back to the Cambrian era, they don't go back beyond the Burgess Shale, which is about 500 million years ago, according to geological age. Um, they have no trace of ancestors, along with many new species and completely new body plants. So by body plans, we mean like spiders have eight legs. You have two legs and, and feet, elephants have big trunks, those sorts of, like you can have variation within those things. Um, like apes and, and us have the same sort of body plan, even though there's quite a bit of variation between us, right? We're not the same. Nevertheless, the body plan is kind of the same. We don't have eight legs like spiders. That's what body plans means. There is no trace of any of that stuff beforehand. So this is an incredibly... Uh, by the way, I think that they're hiding things from us. I did a Google search for, for a long time trying to find a good picture of the Cambrian explosion, and it's just not there. They don't give you one. So this is the best you get, and it's junk, but follow with me for just a second. This is the timeline, this is hard to do, but the timeline's going up. This is 630 million years ago, 542 million years ago, 488 million years ago, so it's going up this way. And this is the Cambrian era in here. All of the red lines you see on here are actual fossil records, okay? All of the white lines are where they're saying, this is where they're all connected, but they have no evidence of that whatsoever, okay? Notice something about this little 542 million years ago thing. Look at all of the red lines and where they stop. There's a red line here that you can't quite see, and it stops. Notice what that is. Oh, something went extinct. There's a red line here, and it stops. Oh, something went extinct. There's two here. Oh, they went extinct. There's one here. Oh, it went extinct. We've only got two lines that continue up from the previous generations into the new ones. One of them ends up here, which is basically coral, the other one ends here. Now, you think, oh, there's a mouse here. And so that mouse, even though it's pointing at this one, this one might be related to that mouse. It's not related at all. You know what this thing is? Jellyfish. There, there are no vertebrates with any sort of ancestors before the Cambrian era. There's none of them. So this idea of like animals slowly changing over time to become something new, Has been chucked in biology. It's not what anyone holds to. That whole picture of like Neanderthal and then standing a little bit more erect and then he's doing Saturday night fever at the end. Like that, that is not what actually happens in biology. They don't believe that anymore. So they came up with something. Um, Jay Gould um, came up with, I can't, uh, there's somebody else who wrote with him, but something called punctuated equilibrium. Not only do they now admit that species live for an incredibly long time in what they call stasis, which means they don't change. They don't move. They don't adapt. We've got fossils from here. We've got fossils from here. And you know what? They're exactly the same. Hundreds of millions of years apart. Exactly the same. They just don't change. But then we've got these things where it's, it's equilibrium, where things we're not, it's not the darwin gradual change thing they just flatline they don't change punctuated by this boom of species sometimes and they say this happens because part of a species they call it allotropic which means they're just in a different place they get separated because they're separated they can't then the genes they're smaller groups the genes that mutate there can actually flourish there because if they were back in the large group, one small mutation would probably get breeded out by the rest of the mutations. Um, They get to change and they change so rapidly because it's such a small group that they become new species over the course of like a couple million years. So we don't even have billions of years anymore. Now we're down to a couple million years. The math just gets worse and worse and worse. Speciation can happen sporadically and quickly. And they, they now, I mean, I understand. We're talking about millions of years, but evolutionary-wise, it's quickly. And they admit it has to happen quickly when organisms are isolated and modified in smaller numbers. That's not what it's taught. And again, not easy to explain in terms of probability. So did anyone outside of like taking advanced biology classes where this was mentioned, completely separate from when you learned about evolution, right? Did anyone hear about this when they were taught ev- Again, it's been around since the mid-70s. Jay Gould wrote about this. um, 72, I think, was the first time that they floated this idea. And I'm guessing that if you went to high schools today, they're not talking about it like this. They're talking about it like Darwin talked about it. No one believes Darwin. No one believes Darwin. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that it's not good. And, And the science, frankly, you understand why they did it the way they did it. Like He's at least going about explaining what he sees in the fossil record, but they just can't, they can't give it up. They can't say, well, evolution's... They will say that Darwinian evolution is dead, but they still want to claim Darwin and they don't change what they say. Anyway, we've got to move on. Complexity. Um, oh, we don't have time. Irreducible complexity is the idea that certain systems are complex in a way that can't be accounted for by the addition of changes. The picture of this is the mousetrap, right? So this is... Michael, or, uh, uh, he, he's the one who gives this picture of a mousetrap. You've got this like little wooden plank and you've got the, the spring release and the arm that comes over. And he says, if you take away any bit of that, like you don't have anything that functions for anything. You've just got a piece of metal that flops back and forth as you will it on a piece of wood. If you take away the piece of wood, you've got nothing really. And so this is what he says is irreducible complexity, that there are certain systems like the eye or a wing that if you, you can't just make small additions to and think that you're going to get functionality at every stop, okay? The eye is incredibly complex, but if you take away a structure in the eye or you take away some proteins in the eye, you're not going to get the same functionality out of it. You actually get something that is unfunctional, non-functional. Unfunctional sounds better. We'll go with unfunctional. So John Rennie, um, who wrote that Scientific America article that we're going to read here in just a second. He's an editor-in-chief. He's Scientific American is an important science magazine. He was the editor-in-chief for a while. So he's not an insignificant bloke. He wrote 15 answers to creationist nonsense, which is just fantastic. And um, that's where you can find the article. And by the way, in this article, he laments that, that creationists, he says, creationist arguments are typically specious and based on misunderstandings of or outright lies about evolution, okay? This is what he said. We're not going to have time to read this, but this is what he says about um, this particular irreducible complexity thing. Evolutionary biologists have answers to these objections. First, there exist flagelli. Uh, so those, what Behe says is flagellum are like the little tails on certain cells that push them around, and he says that looks like a motorboat. And if you, if you look at this very specific one, you can't take something away from it without it becoming absolutely unusable. Okay, so that's his point. If you take some sort of part of it away, it becomes unusable. He says, first, there exist flagelli with forms simpler than the one that Behe cites, so it is not necessary for all those components to be present for the flagellum to work. (sighs) That's not what the man is arguing. Okay, I'll give you a really good example of this in a bit, but that that is a specious argument that misunderstands or mischaracterizes or lies about what creationists are saying. That is not his argument. He's not saying that that you have to have this or you've got nothing, You can't have anything simpler than this. It's clearly not the argument. The argument's actually called complexity. So, you know, um. The sophisticated components of this flagellum have all precedents elsewhere in nature as described by somebody at Brown University. In fact, the entire flagellum assembly is extremely similar to an organelle that Yersinia pestis, the bubonic plague bacterium, uses to inject toxin into cells. And people, you shouldn't care at all about that because that's not his argument. His argument isn't that simpler forms can't be found anywhere. Basically, this this is what irreducible complexity says. If we start with a tricycle, can we make simple changes to that tricycle and at every stage end up with something that is functional in order to build a motorcycle? Okay. What we're not saying is that this is not helpful. We're not saying that there exists a simpler form of transportation that is helpful. We're not saying that, that there aren't parts of this that resemble parts of this. We're not saying that this is not going to have somebody that's not extreme. Like, if you've got balance issues, this is probably better for you than this. There's a whole bunch of things that, and maybe this is just not your speed. Maybe it's too much speed. Whatever. There's, there's all kinds of reasons that we would say simpler is the present, but complex is the present. But what we're saying is to go from this to this by making individual changes and still having a functional bike is impossible. It's impossible. Just think of like the mechanic. You, the minute you take anything off of this, it becomes, other than maybe the seat, you can, I don't know if you're just gonna like, I'm just gonna stand. Um, but h- how do you add anything to it? That's not it? And we can even talk about like, we're just gonna import an entire engine, okay? We're not gonna talk about the, the making of the engine. We're just gonna import the whole thing. It's impossible. That's what they're arguing. They're not arguing that tricycles don't exist in nature which is what, what, what that guy basically says. Behe's an idiot because tricycles exist in nature. Like that's kind of what he's arguing. And Behe's like, I'm sure maybe he's like worried about it because he doesn't understand his own argument, but I would guess that he's probably saying that's not what I'm saying at all. This is irreducible complexity. And it's hard for them to answer wings on a bat, right? So bats didn't come from mice, but let's suppose that they did. How do you, how do you start adding longer and longer bits of skin to a mouse where it starts to lose, so you got flying squirrels, right? But those flying squirrels can't actually fly. In order for flying squirrels to fly, their bone structure needs to change. They've gotta lose a ton of muscle on their actual arms, which they use for climbing. And they've gotta lose a lot of that functionality to gain other functionality. In the middle between going from a mouse to a flying squirrel, or from a regular squirrel to a flying squirrel to a bat, you are a sitting duck that is just going to get eaten alive. You can't bury things anymore because you don't have digging claws to bury the nuts that you keep. Like, just all kinds of problems. Anyway, now we're going to fly. Morality. <clears throat> um, basically, with evolution, um, humans, there are some, certain groups of humans that might very well be more advanced, Right? And if there are certain groups of humans that might very well be more advanced, keeping the less around is detrimental. What would, be, what would be helpful then, if you're an evolutionist, is to say, if we wanted to really push evolution, we should gather up the most bestest people that we can and not worry about everybody else and just keep those people and let them procreate, making what we might call a, a master race, I think it's been thought of before. So, like, when you use evolution as your basis, there's no reason why racism, slavery, or eugenics, or any of that is off table. Like, it's not. By the way, like a man of his times, and we have to admit he's a man of his times, Darwin, super open to racism. Like, he was just super open to it. He thought that that was probably true. Now, we're Southern Baptists, so we're not going to shake our heads too terribly hard at him. Um, But nevertheless, There's no reason for evolutionists today to not think the same. Now, and we've got to be careful with that. I'm not saying that they do think the same. I'm saying there is no rational basis for them to think otherwise. They do think otherwise, almost all of them, but there's no rational basis for it, okay? And then rationality, which we can skip over pretty quickly. Um, Basically, Alvin Plantinga makes um, a very—we talked about him last week. He makes a really fun argument that— if you accept evolution and you accept natural selection, then you have basically no idea whether you were rational or not. And because you have no idea whether you're rational or not, it is irrational to think that you arrived at the position of naturalism and, and evolution rationally. So it's kind of fun, but you guys don't need to know about it. Um, all right. Uh, his question is, what is the probability that we're rational given evolution and there is no reason to accept that we are rational? You have, you have absolutely no rational basis to believe that you're rational if you believe in evolution. And he states this, Alvin's a really careful philosopher, he states this in the most certain of ways. He says that he has, there is a universal defeater for this and it cannot be overcome. Um, and I don't think I've seen anybody try to answer him yet, but I'm not a philosopher, so I probably can't use that one, but I thought it was interesting to put in there. Okay, in the end, like, huge problems with evolution, and notice we didn't, like, have to beat the Bible to say this, right? The Bible, by the way, beats evolution up pretty hard, Like, it's just, it's not something that the Bible holds out, especially in terms of the making of Adam and Eve. It just, it doesn't hint at it at all. And so we would be happy to throw evolution away for that. But again, when we deal with apologetics, we've got to meet people where they are. And any one of these is a pretty strong way to start. And I would warn you don't come out with guns blazing. We'll talk more about how to handle yourself and things like this. These are like, these are really nice questions to just kind of grenade launch at somebody and say and if they blow off the math and they say but but it happened so we know it can happen say yeah but what what is the likelihood of that happening can you take me through the math like like work with me on the math here because i just don't understand how that could happen why is it that that we all of a sudden in the cambrian era in a in an incredibly small frame of time have all of these advanced phyla appearing for the first time with no ancestors. That's not what Darwin would have said. And um, and just see what you get. So um, frankly, I, I just have trouble believing in evolution. Um, I think if I'm not, I'm not such a rational person where if I didn't have the Bible, I would probably believe in evolution because I wouldn't give it a second thought but I don't think that you have to believe in the Bible to say that evolution is just, it's tough to buy into. It's tough to buy into. So any questions before we, we go? Thank you for putting up with that. I know that that was a lot to, to take in. It's recorded, you can play it back slowly and my voice will be really deep. Okay, and I ended just on time for the kids to be here. So let's pray and uh, we, can be, we can be gone. Father, we are grateful that we are made in your image. We're grateful that you have wonderfully and fearfully made each of us. You have given us an identity that is important and not trivial. Uh, We are not simply the dirt of the ground that has, through time and chance, become uh, animated, but rather because of your grace and your kindness to us, you have formed us in your image. You have given us rationality and the ability to love and the ability to... Care for others the ability to do right moral actions. These things are blessings from you. Um, let us not tarnish it by, by considering that, that it is nothing but chance. Like your wonder of creation can happen solely with just enough time. Um, what a, what a horrible way to treat a God who has so fearfully and lovingly made us. Uh, let us always uphold the goodness of your creation and let us be people made in your image that tell people of the glory of our God and speak well to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.